This is Generation Justice. I'm Sam Lechuga. And I'm Kenya Alonzo. Generation Justice is a multimedia movement to train youth to harness the power of media to promote social change. This evening's program is about working together in solidarity. Solidarity is about supporting each other and building unity towards a common goal. So tonight, we are bringing you stories of the people who are working to ensure equity in many areas of society. We will hear about the work of Dr. Jeannie Ang and Dr. Jennifer Shaw, two amazing physicians who show their solidarity with cancer patients of color by researching the inequity and racism in cancer treatment. We will also take you to the 2015 Summer Institute of Mujeres Activas en Letras y Cambia Social, or MALCS. This inspiring group of women held a panel discussion on building solidarity across identities and cultures. But before we begin, let's hear some music to get us in the mood for solidarity. Here is Bob Marley's One Love. Welcome back. Tonight, we're learning about working together in solidarity for the health and happiness of all. Dr. Jeannie Ng and Dr. Jennifer Schall have dedicated themselves to the important research of looking at how systematic racism is present in cancer treatment. Both doctors presented at a panel discussion titled, Community-Based Research to Improve Cancer Care Through Undoing Racism and Promoting Equity. Here are Dr. Ng and Dr. Schall. I'm Jeannie Yang, and I am a founding member of the Greensboro Health Disparities Collaborative. I'm Jennifer Shaw. I am a member of the Partnership Project, which is an anti-racism training organization. I'm also one of the founding members of the Greensboro Health Disparities Collaborative and a community partner for the ACURE grant. Our first study, CARES, Cancer Care and Racial Equity Study, was to address two questions. The first question was, did African-American and white women with breast cancer in Guilford County, North Carolina, receive treatment at Moses Cone Cancer Center that was the same? The second question was, if the breast cancer care was not the same, how was it different and what could have been the reasons? Our second study, A Cure, is a five-year intervention trial to apply the findings that we had from CCARES and to test a systems change intervention. As a result, it transformed the way that they functioned as an organization, and the partnership basically became an anti-racism training organization and went about educating community members and organizational leaders in understanding institutional racism and ways to use strategic actions to benefit communities. The anti-racism training has continued to be an important part of the collaborative in that if you would like to join our group, one of the criteria is that you have to undergo a two-day anti-racism training before joining. So I'm going to just briefly go through an overview of what the anti-racism training includes. The first phase is an exercise in thinking outside the box, shifting the paradigm in how we look at things. The second phase looks at historical and current relationships between institutions and communities and then creates a power analysis that includes a visual diagram to show the relationship between communities and the institutions that interact with them. 
The third phase of the training is to look at gatekeeping, accountability, and internalized racial oppression and how that plays into this power analysis. The fourth phase is to look at race and racism. And it talks about how racism manifests in our institutions in multiple ways, linguistically, culturally, individually. And then the final phase is to look at how institutions impose their values and cultures on the communities that they interact with and looks at the issue of internalized racial superiority. In the public health field, there are very few theories, very few concepts that really address equity or inequities from a systems perspective. There are very few theories that actually address cultural humility. Most of what we do in public health is cultural competence, that you know, we can be so arrogant as to think that we can become competent in somebody else's culture in a few hours. It's much more of a lifelong process. And so for me, it was like quite a revelation to realize that I'm a gatekeeper. I actually make a living from people's poverty. I actually make a living because people are being oppressed. I take students into communities without even really asking. And so as a gatekeeper, I'm seeing that I am part of the system. We're focusing on breast and lung cancer. And the trend has been going on for a long time. It's actually getting worse. And for breast and lung cancer, African-American patients tend to initiate treatment later. They're less apt to undergo and complete treatment. Like they might start they might delay treatment, or then they start, but then they might not actually complete the treatment when compared to whites. And so this results in worse treatment outcomes, which includes survival rates. And so like five years after you begin treatment, what is the survival rate? And so what we find that the gap in research is that there are very few prospective studies that have identified systemic causes. You know, what is it in the cancer care system that contributes to the delay? And few research studies have actually involved interventions. So it might just describe the problem, but it doesn't really address the problem. Anti-racism training has two very important concepts in its framework. One is to increase transparency of the inequities. And then the other is to enhance accountability of the system. We had eight focus groups, four at each of our cancer centers, white breast cancer patients, black breast cancer patients, white lung cancer patients, black lung cancer patients. The focus groups were led by people of the same color as the participants. This is a synopsis of our findings. One of the things that we felt is very important and that we always present at the beginning when we're presenting to the staff at the cancer centers is that almost across the board, the patients expressed a lot of positive feelings about the cancer center and their experiences there. They did not feel that they were treated differently by race. Not a single person said that they felt they were treated differently by race. So it was not about personal interactions and personal experiences of feeling different by race. But when we looked into the data, there were clearly some areas in which there were differences. There were some areas that were similar between the two sites, communication challenges. There's a variety of ways in which that was expressed, delays that were imposed by the Cancer Center for various reasons, everything from doctors being on vacation to machines not working to someone being out sick. All of those things were very important in how patients perceived their care. And then pain and side effect management really rose to the top as, a, as an issue that was especially important to the African-American patients. 
but then there were also some things that were very different. There was a difference in how flexible the patients felt the cancer center was in managing their symptoms and their problems. There were different perceptions of provider and staff attitudes between the two centers. And so the first, the first session was in shifting the paradigm and thinking outside the box about causes of health outcomes. And how we tried to shift the paradigm and think out of the box was we showed them, it's a, it's a video called uh, Bad Sugar, and it's about the Pima Indians. Then, you know, because what, we asked them, we asked our audience, who were all these cancer center employees, you know, so what are the causes of diabetes? And they can rattle them off, you know, and what are, the, what are the best interventions for diabetes? Well, healthy eating, physical activity, et cetera. And then we show them the video, you know, where they see that there was no diabetes in, among the Pima Indians in, before 1920s. But when water was cut off from their communities because they dammed the river, then all kinds of bad things started to happen. And so then after we show them the video, then we say, so now what are the causes of diabetes? And so what would be the best intervention here? for the Pima to intervene with diabetes. And so it gets them to switch outside of the box. Now they're not talking about cancer, they're talking about a disease that they all know about, but that maybe I'm looking at this differently. Maybe we need to see it more broadly and to look at it more systemically. It's actually looking at social determinants, so seeing it from a different perspective. And that was um, phase one. Session two, examine race-specific findings. So then we presented them with the retrospective data so they can see from their own data where the inequities are by race after controlling for comorbidity, income, education, insurance, you know, all of this, so they can actually see uh, from their own system. Then the next session is actually we begin defining racism, but we actually focus on implicit bias. So what is implicit bias and how does it work in our minds? You know, how can it be invisible, but yet it is visible? It really surprises me that while doing this study, African Americans were diagnosed later and were, give, and, were given, and were less likely to complete treatment than that of the white participants. This makes me question the quality and care that the African American women were receiving. The thing that really stood out to me is that the African American patients didn't feel like they were being treated any different than the other patients. They only realized after they saw the research from the study and saw that they were given excuses rather than the treatment that they were hoping to receive. Exactly. Thank you, Dr. Eng and Dr. Shaw, for sharing your findings. Here is Where is the Love by the Black Eyed Peas. This summer, the annual Mujeres Activas en Letras y Cambio Social, or MALC's two-day institute took place at UNM. The theme this year was honoring our intersectionality, our migration roots and routes. Tonight, we bring you the inspirational panel discussion about cultural intersectionality and solidarity building across identities. The panelists included Bambi Salcedo, founder and president of Translatina Coalition, Isa Noyola, program manager at the Transgender Law Center, Jeannie Baca, Director of Student Affairs, UNM Gallup, filmmaker and activist Dulce Garcia, and Dr. Olga Talamante, co-founder of the Chicana Latina Foundation. Let's hear their inspiring discussion. We will begin with the founder of the Trans-Latina Coalition, Bambi Saucedo. Thank you. 
Buenas tardes a todos. I also want to say that I am so honored and privileged that I get to share stage with such amazing and powerful women. For me, I have to recognize my power and I have to recognize my privilege, right? That members of my community, particularly trans women, don't get to really exercise their power as they should. You know, the experience that I have lived are the same experiences that young people are encountering today and living today. And I know that today, at least, or I know that someone who is of trans experience is going to be sleeping on the streets. I know that someone who is of trans experience is going to be harassed in some way. And I know that at least someone who is of trans experience is potentially gonna get killed today, simply because of who we are. And I am so thankful that I get acknowledged and validated as a woman in this conference. So for that, I really, I really thank you and I appreciate you for this invitation. Our next panelist, Isa Noyola, Program Manager at the Transgender Law Center. In sharing the work, I think it was last week, I was being interviewed of like why I'm engaged in this work around sort of fighting against um, uh, the state around sort of the violence that our communities experience, not just trans, but just in general, like the ways in which the state is regulating um, on a daily basis um, violence and waging wars against our communities. And so, um, and so for me, like in, in fighting for my hermanas inside detention is fighting for myself um, because we know that trans individuals, even outside of detention, face violence, face transphobia, face hate and discrimination. Across the board, if you look at the stats um, around housing, employment, education, there's many systemic barriers. I understand that um, fighting this fight, engaging in these conversations, building bridges, building connections, finding allies, having allies um, engage with us and, and build power with us is so critical right now. Um, and thank you for having me. Jeannie Baca is the director of the student affairs at UNM Gallup, and Jeannie Baca has also been the leader that took the LGBTQ Resource Center to Gallup. Give it up for Jeannie Baca. Being in student service has been um, really eye-opening to me. We established an LGBTQ center last November in Gallup. After, um, you know, talking to Alman, coming out here and visiting the university and realizing, oh, this is a no-brainer. This should have happened years and years ago. You know, the important work is about establishing environments where we can honor our students and support their success. It is my delicious pleasure to introduce Dulce Garcia, a fierce femme. She graduated from UC Irvine with two bachelor degrees and received her master's degree in ethnic studies. Give it up for Dulce Garcia. So with that said, um, I'm a gordita that was born in Mexico. Um, I was raised in Istale, so I'm a chola from Boyle Heights. Um, yeah, I mean, 
the eyeliner, I should have told you, right? Um, <laughs> I mean, I've, I was the first in my family to graduate from college. My professional life, I'm a consultant for SF War, which is San Francisco Women Against Rape. So I do a lot of work around uh, rape prevention, um, bystander intervention, healthy relationships, uh, what is consent. And I'm really honored to be along with Chingona that I look up to, so. Our next panelist, Olga Talamante, Executive Director of Chicana Latina Foundation. Gracias, Alma Rosa. I'm not in academia, I'm in the Cambio Social section. And so, so glad that, that this is so beautiful. You guys are just brilliant. Uh, some of you know me from having been a political prisoner in Argentina. For all the political work that I have done and the activism, both within the Chicano movement, the Solidarity movement, the LGBTQ movement, the roots were really in the campos of Gilroy for me. My political consciousness came from picking in the fields, from picking prunes, strawberries, tomatoes, garlic. But the political consciousness did not come because of the hard work of which I'm very proud and it was so dignified of our families that work hard. It was the power relations of the rancheros to our familias is how we were treated. Your personal story leads you to, to your individual consciousness and that also leads you to collective consciousness when you realize you're not the only one. There are others like us, and so we get together, and then we take action. That's part of what we, we do in the Chicana Latina Foundation where I work now, and that is to really work with our students, who are all college, uh, Latina college students, about the power of your personal story. Uh, and I feel so honored also and so blessed to work with Chicana Latina Foundation, to do what's uh, in my heart, uh, and work for social change. So it's a great honor to be here with you. Thank you. So, our first question, working in solidarity and across intersection of identity, the theme of our panel today. Can you share strategies of how to strengthen relations, movements, movement building, scholarship, across identities and issues? I think we need to obviously start with our own families. It's important that we talk to our own family, right? Like, I know that you know, when I was working doing HIV prevention, working with young people specifically, right, like, I have nephews and I have nieces. Why wouldn't I have those conversations with them if my work is doing HIV prevention with young people? And so I think we can obviously share our power and our healing with those who are close to us, but then obviously uh, to the public as a whole in particular within the immigrant rights movement, um, we've seen you know, that the fact that trans women have not been included in the conversation. They have not been included um, in thinking about how are we mobilizing community, how are we building a powerful movement, um, and not just pushing policies and guidelines um, because there's a sense of urgency, right? I think that is just really Amplifying the nuances and the stories and the ways in which the state impacts all of us, I think has really been critical to building that solidarity. The trans community needs everyone and you know, families in detention need trans people to fight for them. It's not so much about, in my opinion, the funding, the process. It's really about the relationships and the allies you have to move forward your agenda, your ideas to support what you want to do. So 
developing the relationships with the individuals that can help advance that quickly, the individuals who are not afraid to have those difficult conversations or ask those hard questions. I think for me personally, I, I had to go back to like, tu eres mi otro yo, um, or you are my other me. And for me, in building solidarity was me learning how to be a better ally. You know, for me, it's about like no one gets left behind. Building solidarity is not telling people like this is what we need from you. It's asking the comunidad, what do you need from me? Right? Because we go in and we're like, oh, we're organizers, right? And no, no shade to organizers, but like we come in, we organize, y nos vamos. And you have to let the people who are most marginalized be the leaders of the movement, be the voices of the movement. I, I think I'm following the same thing. It's like we have to be clear about what we know and what we don't know and our, our biases. And I have kind of like maybe it's kind of a simplistic formula, but it's sort of like non-queer people have to defend queer people. Non-black people have to defend black people. Non, you know, native people have to defend native people and, and be in solidarity. And I think that is how being that voice of the, the voice that's not there. The next question is, how do you integrate young people in your work and how do you support young leaders? I have learned that the best thing to do is really to get out of their way. It's really the support that they get from each other. So it's really important to see that they are each other's mentors in young people. And they can be very, very young. They are each other's examples. I started off as a peer educator, so like, you know, people with my age but I never saw myself as like the expert, right? Like I just saw myself as like the facilitator of the collective knowledge that was in the room. Because I learned way more from the youth than I think I taught them. Finding that power where you're in ourselves to be able to like follow youth, you know, follow their leadership, um, create leadership opportunities for them and let them take the action and let them reclaim and manifest what they see as what, as what they need and not for us to define it for them. Just, I think, working with young people that, you know, we see that trans youth are so fluid about their genders, especially during their teenage years. They're going back and forth. They're using all kinds of pronouns that they're making up, um, all kinds of names, and they're just playing with this, with the, the idea of gender in a way where it's about what feels good for them at the moment and what feels good for them in terms of their body and how they're engaging and seeing the world. Um, and so often, when, when I've seen youth kind of that fire get dimmed or get um, burnt out is when adults have like, you know, muddled things and have like set limitations and have really um, created this like really strict boundary around how we need to go about thinking of gender, so. You have to really be mindful about where you are giving youth their space and that needs, will show the respect and whether you are truly, um, you know, supportive and whether you truly believe in what you're saying. So I would like um, you all as movement, community, organizational, and academic leaders to share how you do self-care and why you think it's important. Self-care is something that we have to lead by example. I do daily affirmations, so um, my mom's like, oh, that's your Bay Area, like, ooh, right? Um, she's like, you're losing your chola credits, but <laughs> I can live, I can live with it, you know? Um, but daily affirmations, and one of the things that I do a lot in the mirror 
I look in the mirror and I, and I say three things. I say, I'm sorry, I forgive you, and I love you. I feel like it's so critical and so essential to have your chosen family because you need to have people that see you. You need to have people that see all of you. Sometimes accept the fact that good is good enough. You know, it's okay. Uh, coming to Malks was part of my self-care. Exercise whatever ideas you may have and lift each other up and lift a member of the community up. Because if we don't, then nobody, the system, is not going to lift us up. It really struck me when Bami Salcedo said that she knew a person of trans experience would be sleeping on the streets, be harassed, or even killed that night. As a society, we're supposed to protect and care for one another, yet we can't accept a person for who they are. I agree. I really like the idea that everyone needs to protect each other. We only have each other, and we need to work towards a more accepting and loving community. Thank you to Bambi Salcedo, Isa Noyola, Jeannie Baca, Dulce Garcia, and Dr. Olga Talamante. Now, for our next song, Third World Girl by Ivion Blackman. One way to build solidarity is by getting out and supporting the community. Let's hear from our calendar hosts, Lucero Velasquez and Jonathan Alonso, about what's going on around town. A huge thanks to all the women that are working for social change. And I'm your calendar host, Lucero Velasquez. And I am also your calendar host, Jonathan Alonso. Tonight, we'll be sharing how you can be a part of making social change in your communities. Yo, Jonathan, make sure to wear purple Tuesday, November 17th for World Prematurity Day. For sure. Let's unite across the world to spread awareness about the global threat of premature birth. Let's stand up for the 15 million babies who are born too soon across the world. Not only is it World Prematurity Day this week, but it's Trans Week of Awareness starting November 16th through the 21st. Yeah, I heard there will be events going on all week to celebrate those trans individuals among us today and those who have sadly passed. The week will include an open house at the Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico, or TGRCNM, movie screenings, a trans history info session, trans health fair, remembrance vigil, and Felicia Flames as our keynote speaker. Transgender Day of Remembrance occurs annually on November 20th. It is a day to memorialize those who have been murdered as a result of transphobia and bring attention to the continued violence endured by the transgender community. Come join us in solidarity with the trans community as we remember those who have passed. It'll be at the UNM Duck Pond at 5 p.m. on November 20th. For more information about all of these events happening during Trans Week of Awareness, you can contact the UNM LGBTQ Resource Center at 505-277-5428 or at lgbtqrc at unm.com.edu. 
There's so many special and fun events going on this week to keep you all busy and active in your community. The event... Not only do we have these important events, but we have some other important events that are happening this week as well. Exactly, and on the 16th is an informational discussion about oil, gas, and the Four Corners methane hotspot. The event will include an informational discussion of methane pollution and its toxic impact on our climate and health. They'll also discuss oil and gas and its impact on Chaco communities and how the BLM and EPA rules can help, and why even stronger action is necessary. That event will be taking place at the United Church of Santa Fe, 1804 Arroyo Chamiso in Santa Fe on Monday, November 16th at 6.30 p.m. If this event interests you and you want more information, you can visit the Sierra Club Rio Grande chapter website or call at 505-243-7767. Our next happening around town will be Thursday, November 19th and is the N Empower Plus Harvest Ball. And Empower Plus works to spread awareness and educate about HIV, AIDS, and other STDs. The organization is dedicated to gay or bi and trans individuals. It'll be a super fun community harvest festival with games, dinner, and bring your funky dance moves to the NM Power Building, located on 136 Washington Street from 5 to 7 p.m. The next cool thing around town is the Desert States Cross Country Meet and Iron Horse 5K Walk and Run. It'll be on Saturday, November 21st from 8.30 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. at the Albuquerque Academy, conveniently located at 6400 Wyoming Boulevard Northeast. The Phi Delta Theta fraternity will be partnering with the UNM Running Club to host a 5K and two-mile walk. All proceeds will benefit the ALS Association's New Mexico chapter. That's all for this week's community calendar. Be sure to join us next week as we share some more community events with you. I'm Jonathan Alonso. And I'm Lucero Velasquez. See you all next week. Now back to our hosts, Sam and Kenya. Thank you, Lucero and Jonathan, for those great community events. Now for another song. Here is The High Road by Broken Bells. Well, we've reached the end of another great show. We would like to thank everyone who made this show possible. Thank you to Dr. Jeannie Ng and Dr. Jennifer Shaw for sharing your knowledge on the important area of racial equity in cancer research. And to all the amazing contributors of the 2015 Malks panel discussion, thank you. Our calendar hosts this evening were Jonathan Alonso and Lucero Velasquez. Production assistance came from George Luna Pina. Tamara Kalaki, Katie Rizuni, Christina Rodriguez, Melissa Harris, Roberta Royale, and Kamaria Umi. And last but certainly not least, much appreciation to all of our youth members here at Generation Justice. We couldn't do what we do without you. Stay connected with us. Check out our website, generationjustice.org, where you can listen to all our past radio programs, see music playlists, read our blogs, watch videos, and much, much more. Our podcasts are now available on iTunes, so be sure to subscribe and rate our podcasts. We're also active on social media, so like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. 
Tweet, tweet. And Instagram. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation with additional funding from the McCune Foundation, Con Alma Health Foundation, and of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking donate. I'm Kenya Alonzo. And I'm Sam Nachuga. Up next on KUNM is Spoken Word, so stay tuned and join us again next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Now, for our final songs. Peace. Cliches are what we say When words don't even matter A sweet tooth for a liar I only wish I'd never met her I know we're losing touch with one another So keep up, you'll need some good luck Running from what you can't imagine Aren't you gonna come along? Aren't you gonna fight? Aren't you gonna hold your hands up to the If you feel an emptiness, if you want to hide, think about the blood that's pumping, keep it.